welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. So far in our show, in this first season on nationalism, we've been spending a lot of time in the Mediterranean basin and the surrounding areas. Besides our episodes on Serbia, which is pretty darn close to the Med, and Ethiopia, we've more or less stuck there with a few asides to Britain. But the Mediterranean is only one of a handful of what historians and archaeologists call cradles of human civilization. These are places where hunter-gatherer societies made the transition to being settled peoples, to building what we would call civilization. And outside the Mediterranean, you will find cradles of civilization in other places, among them China, Mesoamerica, and India. We're going to look at the most ancient of these, and in fact, the most ancient of all human civilizations, India. But before we start, just a quick reminder... I'm now doing a monthly video series called Dan's War College. Those are 20 to 30 minute videos that are a deep dive into a particular historical battle and usually a look at the tactics involved. That is available for Patreon subscribers. That is $5 a month and the link is in my description. And I'm also doing a monthly audio podcast called Irrelevant History, and this covers obscure, quirky events. This month, I'm covering the 1904 Men's Olympic Marathon, quite an absurd event that involved uh, strychnine being used as a performance-enhancing drug. It involved wild dogs getting onto the track, and oh yeah, the organizers were experimenting on the participants to see the effects of dehydration on human beings. This monthly podcast is exclusive to the Salad Tossers Patreon, and that also comes with exclusive episodes of their show and Montel's Debate Hour. That entire package is only $1 a month, and that is available in the description. Returning to our regularly scheduled programming, some of the words and definitions that we use are arbitrary. Words like big or small. I remember my father once commenting that the Grand Canyon demonstrates how often people misuse the word grand because there's really not much else like it. But our use of the word continent is particularly absurd. Now, we all know vaguely what a continent is, right? It's a large landmass, typically one that is surrounded by water. But we don't always agree on what is and is not a continent. For example, in some European cultures, North and South America are considered to be the same continent. The map would simply be labeled the Americas. But I'm not here to quibble about the New World, although obviously the New World is made up of two continents. I'm here to talk about the Old World. How did the old world end up divided in our minds between Asia, Africa, and Europe? And these are important distinctions. The ancient Romans divided their world into those three continents, and people from China to England, and by extension English-speaking countries like the U.S., well, we all have this same view of the continents of the old world. We even use similar boundaries to what the Romans established. 
right along the Ural Mountains, roughly in the east, and roughly along the Caucasus in the southeast. But this view of what makes a continent is not universal. For instance, in other cultures, such as Russia and Japan, Europe and Asia are considered as a single Eurasian continent. And if you look at a map, that sort of makes sense, right? That is one very large landmass. You can see why the Americas are separate. Obviously, they're an entirely separate landmass. You can see how Africa is considered separate. It's separated from Europe by the Mediterranean, and it's barely dangling off West Asia uh, by Egypt. But the division between Asia and Europe seems a bit arbitrary, doesn't it? There's just a couple of mountain ranges. So why did the Romans view it this way, and why do we, by extension, as modern English-speaking and Chinese people? Well, the usual answer given is that Europe is culturally distinct from Asia. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of like saying my right leg is culturally distinct from my left. Again, there is a lot of overlap and interchange between the two areas, but it sort of makes sense. However, if we are going to make up continents based on arbitrary cultural lines rather than, say, geographic ones, then I would propose an eighth continent, the continent of India. Now, for starters, we already consider India a subcontinent, and it is certainly as distinct from the rest of Eurasia as Europe is, if not more so. And as a bonus point... India actually occupies its own continental plate, whereas Europe and most of Asia occupy the same Eurasian plate. Now, when we talk about India as a subcontinent, right, as it's now called, that includes not just the nation of India itself, it also includes Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and a handful of other countries. But the dividing line is given where the Indian continental plate is sliding up against the south end of Asia. And this is important not just if we want to be geographically pedantic. It's important because as the Indian continental plate crashes into the south end of Asia, well, it pushes up a bunch of rock. If you imagine sort of taking two sheets of paper and you know, jamming them together from the ends, well, the ends are going to crumple up, and that's what happens to the Earth's crust here. And so you get the Himalayas in the northeast of India and the Hindu Kush in the west, northwest. These are forbidding mountain ranges. There are only a few passes in these areas where you can even think about, for instance, moving an army through. These are real barriers to conquest and to trade. Not saying that trade and conquest don't happen. Those are key to India's history. But also key to India's history is having some degree of separation. Now, the Indian subcontinent today is home to approximately 1.7 billion people. That's more than one in five human beings on the planet. It's also more than the population of every quote-unquote real continent other than Asia. There are more people in India, on the Indian subcontinent, than in all of Africa. There are more people there 
than you will find in all of Europe or in all of the Americas or in all of Oceania. There are a ton of people here, and yet we haven't talked about this place because we're talking about nationalism. And as former colonial nations, leaving aside the rest of the subcontinent, India and Pakistan are very young countries. The modern political entities, right, the nation-states of India and Pakistan, only date back to 1947. And as you might expect for such young countries, the ideas of what constitutes nationalism in both of them, these are controversial things. The main division between India and Pakistan is between territory that is majority Muslim, Pakistan, and that area which is majority Hindu, which is now India. That was never set in stone. Gandhi himself, the great peaceful liberator of India, was ultimately assassinated by an Indian nationalist furious at the division of the subcontinent between India and Pakistan. This guy thought that Gandhi was being too soft on the Muslims by letting them have their own country. It is if Gandhi could have done anything else without engaging in violence. But regardless, those religious boundaries are what we have today. And the roots of those boundaries come with the spread of Islam into India in the 1100s AD. But the story of India itself is much, much older. See, the first humans appeared in India sometime between 100,000 and 55,000 years ago. These prehistoric people were hunter-gatherers. Right? They didn't farm, they roamed from place to place, eating whatever they could scrounge up and whatever they could catch. And they were among the first people to leave Africa. In fact... If you look at all of the various human genetic haplogroups, all of those that are native to areas outside Africa can be traced to these early migrants. So from these first people to leave Africa and go to India, we get the ancestors of every human civilization outside of Africa. The first civilization would be sometime in coming. See, civilization is a word that's become controversial in a political context. Oftentimes, the word civilization has been used to denigrate people who do not have the same access to modern technology as the most modern countries, for instance. That is not what civilization means in a historical context. It is a very literal term in a historical context based on the Latin word civitas for city. In other words, it refers to civilizations or to cultures where people have settled into organized sedentary societies. Think about what is required to have a city. And by city, I don't mean like a modern metropolis of millions of people. I mean a few thousand people where you have some traders and some specialists like blacksmiths, maybe a temple, right? people who are spending their lives engaging in something other than just getting enough food to survive. Hunter-gatherer societies begin this process with shaman and other religious figures, people who have a responsibility to provide for the tribe's spiritual needs and who are given food by others in exchange for this. Well, in a civilization, 
you have more than just those kinds of specialists. You have people performing all kinds of tasks. And once you have this civilization, people tend to remain in place. Again, if you're talking about hunter-gatherer society, people are often roaming around as resources shift. If you're going to have a, a city... You are investing resources of some kind in building that city. If you're building even basic wooden structures, you're clearing trees and you're mixing up mud or some kind of clay to seal up the gaps in the wood, right? Even basic structures involve some investment of time and resources. And the whole point being that to build a civilization, you first need to have excess resources. And... From what we see pretty much everywhere in the world that people become civilized, the first civilization in India appears in a river valley. Why is this? Well, you need irrigation to grow grain. Right? Grain being the staple of any civilization. Right? Calorie-rich food you can save for the winter. Well... Irrigation itself requires investment of resources. You have to start somewhere before you can start digging canals and irrigating out from there. And a river valley, particularly one with periodic flooding, well, that's just perfect for a hunter-gatherer society to make the leap to civilization. Like they don't have to invest initial resources they don't have to start farming this area. And this happens in the Indus River Valley in modern-day Pakistan sometime around the year 3300 BC. This is around the same time as the first Egyptian pharaohs right, and the first civilizations in ancient Mesopotamia. And, oh, guess what? Both of those civilizations were also based in river valleys with periodic flooding. And shortly thereafter, a few hundred years later, you would see the first Chinese civilizations. And guess what? Same thing, based in river valleys with flooding. And a few thousand years after that, you start seeing civilizations in the Americas in same thing. At this fortunate geography in the Indus River Valley is important. And this Indus Valley civilization is sometimes called the Harappan civilization because the bulk of early Harappan artifacts were found in the Pakistani town of Harappa. Frustratingly, we don't know much about these people. Like the Mesopotamian civilizations and like the Egyptians, we have a fairly substantial number of clay tablets and stone inscriptions and similar writings from these Harappan people. But with the Mesopotamian and Egyptian languages, we had enough information to be able to translate for instance, with Egyptian, we had the Rosetta Stone, which allowed early archaeologists to decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Well, we don't have that for the Harappan civilization. So while we have a frustrating number of writings from these people, we don't actually know what any of it says. And so... When their civilization collapses around 1300 BC, this civilization that was around for, give or take, 2,000 years, well, we don't really know why. There's some evidence that it was driven by climate change and by the shifting of riverbeds. Right, these formerly flowing rivers where Harappan settlements were found are nowadays just dry riverbeds, and they seem to have dried up around the time the civilization collapsed, but 
as for why these people simply couldn't have moved somewhere else or if they were facing you know, disease or other issues, it's really hard to tell. Uh, but what is important is that by this time, 2,000 years have passed. Right? Civilization has spread from the Indus Valley throughout most of the rest of India. Right? There are now several pockets of settled peoples in India who are you know, living their lives in cities and civilizing their neighbors. Right? And these include several sedentary peoples along the Ganges River in eastern India, sort of kitty corner to the Indus on the Indian subcontinent. Now, another thing that would happen during this time would be the Aryan invasion. Now, the Aryans are an ethno-linguistic group, right? They're people who share a common ancestry and culture, and they originate roughly from the area of modern-day Afghanistan. And like many people from the Central Asian steppes, they would ultimately migrate in multiple directions, so similar peoples would also move into Iran and found early Persian culture. But these Aryans who migrate into India in the late first millennium BC, well, they bring with them a language, and this language is uh, the basis for Sanskrit and modern-day Hindi, among others. And in addition to their language, they bring written language that we can read. They bring the earliest Hindu scriptures called Vedas. And these scriptures in the early Hindu beliefs necessitate the development of what we call a caste system. And the Vedic civilization caste system divides people up into various uh, racial or ethnic groups and determines who is allowed to do what jobs or subservient to whom based on which group they belong to. Uh, so the top position initially, naturally enough, is occupied by the Aryans, which Aryan in their language literally means noble ones. And with these people on top, they are then followed by allied tribes, followed by enemies. Well, this looks like what usually happens when people get conquered, right? The conquerors take the top jobs and give them to their descendants, and they throw some bones to their allies, and anybody they'd conquered or who is an enemy, well, they're last on the list. But this becomes encoded in, in the religion early on. By the way, this idea of the Aryans as a master race, along with the German word air for honor, this became the basis for Nazi Aryan identity, which is absolutely absurd. Right? These Aryans in ancient India were not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Nordic people. These were Central Asian people from the steppes and they brought with them at least the origins of early Hinduism and early Hindu scripture. And as the Vedic civilization spread and absorbed surrounding civilizations, the caste system would become more religious and less political. So at this point now you get the Brahmins, or the priestly class, at the head of society, followed by the Kshatriyas, or warriors, then the Shudras, or free peasants, people who work their own land, and then finally by the Dasas, or slaves, people who work other people's land in servitude. And to be fair, 
this caste system, uh, at least initially, uh, somewhat reflects the earlier social order. Right, A disproportionate number of Brahmins and Kshatriyas are Aryans, and so you see the continued uh, domination of Sanskrit and the development of what would have ultimately become the Hindi language uh, that we know today. But at the same time, the change of the caste system into something explicitly religious allows for this Vedic civilization to be divided into different political entities. So, uh, during the early first millennium BC, uh, Vedic political organization is based around 16 major princedoms, uh, mostly located around northern India and modern-day Pakistan. Right, This is the area uh, where you have the Indus River Valley in the west and the Ganges River Valley in the east. And then to the south of that, in sort of central and western India, the Deccan Plateau, as it's called, uh, that area is still ruled by a bunch of smaller chiefdoms. But by the 500s BC, almost all of India has become civilized. And also during this time, between the late 600s and early 400s BC, a monk named Siddhartha Gautama preaches a message of enlightenment through meditation and acceptance. After his death, he would be known as the Buddha. So... India is now the birthplace of not one, but two of the world's great religions. Now, Vedic civilization would get a major shock in the late 300s BC. At this time, Alexander the Great, one of the first great conquerors of history, invades from the northwest. By now, these princedoms are fielding major armies. The Roman historian Justin writes a likely embellished account of one battle, and he says, quote, of Alexander, quote, Next he sailed to the Ambri and the Sagambri, who met him with 80,000 foot and 60,000 horse. Gaining the victory in a battle, he led his army against their city, and supposing, as he looked from the wall which he had been the first to mount, that the place was destitute of defenders, he leapt down into the area of the city without a single attendant. The enemy, seeing him alone, gathered round upon him with a shout, to try if by taking back one life, they could put an end to war in the world, and exact vengeance for the defeats of so many nations. Alexander withstood them with equal spirit, fighting alone against thousands. It is indeed incredible that neither the multitude of enemies, nor the thick showers of javelins, nor the loud outcries of his assailants could in the least alarm him, and that he alone should have spread havoc and terror among so many thousands." But seeing that he was likely to be overpowered by numbers, he fixed himself against the trunk of a tree that stood by the wall, by the help of which he long resisted a host when, his danger being known, his friends leapt down to him, many of whom were slain, and the battle continued doubtful till the whole army, making a breach in the wall, came to his aid. Being wounded in the struggle by an arrow, and likely to faint through loss of blood, he placed his knee on the ground, and fought till he had killed the man by whom he had been wounded. The curing of the wound caused him more suffering than the wound itself. Unquote. Now, whether Alexander the Great literally invaded a city all by himself and fought alone against thousands for a while is up to your judgment, but... The overall gist of the story, right, that these Indian kingdoms were a major foe to be taken seriously and were fielding major armies, well, 
that's probably accurate. As a matter of fact, it is in India where Alexander would meet his match. Right In 325 BC, faced against yet another massive army belonging to the Nanda dynasty, his troops would mutiny. They would simply refuse to go forward, and there, at the Indus River, Alexander would mark the boundaries of his empire. This Nanda dynasty that had stood against him, well, it would be conquered, but not from outside India. Instead, it would be conquered by Chandragupta Maurya, the first Indian emperor. Like many such founding figures, like Alexander himself, Chandragupta's origins are shrouded in legend. He seems to have been born as a slave in east-central India when he was purchased by Chanakya, a political philosopher and renowned diplomat. Chanakya sends Chandragupta to school in Taxila, which is a city in modern-day Pakistan. There, Chandragupta studies military strategy and philosophy and law, and the author Plutarch even reports him meeting Alexander the Great as a young man. And after completing his studies, Chandragupta enters the service of the Nanda king, the one who had faced off with Alexander. Now, what happens next is less clear. None of our sources are contemporary, and all of them differ. Chandragupta's story is told in different ways by Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, and Greco-Roman sources, so take your pick as to how things actually happen exactly, but either the king insults Chandragupta, or he insults Chanakya, or one of the other two insults him, but whoever insults who, the upshot is that Chandragupta and Chanakya become outlaws, and are living in hiding from this king. And Chanakya hires an army. Apparently he's very rich. And he puts his highly educated slave, Chandragupta, in charge. The conquest of the Nanda dynasty is either easy because the Nanda king's troops are disloyal, or it's difficult because there are many of them. Again, depends who you ask. But in the end, Chandragupta does capture him in battle, and then, depending on your source, either beheads him or exiles him. Regardless, right around this time... In 322 BC, right as Chandragupta is done taking over the lands of the Nanda dynasty, Alexander the Great dies without leaving an heir. And this leaves his empire in tatters, with each general ruling his own province and warring with the others. Chandragupta takes advantage of this. He quickly conquers the Macedonian-held lands in the Indian subcontinent, even as far north as Kandahar in Afghanistan. At this point, in 317 BC, he and Seleucius, the Macedonian-Persian leader, then reach a truce, and they become friends. And as part of the deal, Chandragupta even takes a Macedonian bride... Seleucius' daughter, and as a dowry, he gives Seleucius 500 trained elephants. With his conquests in the northwest complete, Chandragupta then turns south and subdues most of the rest of India before settling down to rule his empire in peace. This empire will be called the Mauryan Empire, after Chandragupta's family name. And it marks the first time the Indian subcontinent is more or less 
not completely, but more or less, united under one ruler. And Chanakya, Chandragupta's purchaser slash tutor slash, I'm not really sure what you call him, that's kind of a unique relationship, but Chanakya himself is also worth remembering in his own right. Uh, his book, The Arthashastra, is the Indian equivalent of Sun Tzu's The Art of War and Machiavelli's The Prince. One thing that struck me when reading The Arthashastra is that you know, even in... You know, the 300s BC, Chanakya is keenly aware that even under a monarchical system, leaders rule to some extent or another by the consent of the governed. He counsels Chandragupta to be not just a strong leader, but a just one and to make war, when he can, against unjust kings. In one passage, Chanakya writes as follows, quote, The strong enemy of wicked character should be marched against, for when he is attacked, his subjects will not help him, but rather put him down or go to the side of the conqueror. But when the enemy of virtuous character is attacked, his subjects will help him or die with him. By insulting the good and commending the wicked, by causing unnatural and unrighteous slaughter of life, by neglecting the observance of proper and righteous customs, by doing unrighteous acts and neglecting righteous ones, by doing what ought not to be done and not doing what ought to be done, by not paying what ought to be paid and exacting what ought not to be taken, by not punishing the guilty and severely punishing the less guilty, by arresting those who are not to be caught and leaving those who are to be arrested, by undertaking risky works and destroying profitable ones, by not protecting the people against thieves and by robbing them of their wealth, by giving up manly enterprise and condemning good works, by hurting the leaders of the people and despising the worthy, by provoking the aged, by crooked conduct and by untruthfulness, by not applying remedies against evils and neglecting works in hand, and by carelessness and negligence of himself in maintaining the security of person and property of his subjects, the king causes impoverishment, greed, and disaffection to appear among his subjects. When the people are impoverished, they become greedy. When they are greedy they become disaffected. When disaffected, they voluntarily go to the side of the enemy or destroy their own master. Hence, no king should give room to such causes as would bring about impoverishment, greed, or disaffection among his people. If, however, they appear, he should at once take remedial measures against them. Unquote. And Chandragupta would rule under these principles. He would build an administrative capital at Pataliputra in the northeast, and from there he would construct a road network connecting all of India to the capital. And these roads facilitated the spread of trade and communication and armies. And Chandragupta would also construct a large number of irrigation canals to grow Indian agriculture. Like more or less everything else about this man, even Chandragupta's death is controversial. Some say he became a Jain, spelled J-A-I-N in English, and... That is a religion of complete and total nonviolence. Right? A fundamentalist, extremist, Jainist uh, wears a, a face mask even during non-pandemic times uh, just in case they might inhale a bug or something and kill it. Right. So, according to this story, 
when Chandragupta converts to Jainism, he is so horrified by his previous life of violent conquest that he retires as a monk and ultimately undergoes a process of ritual self-mummification as penance for his violence. This is something that maybe you don't want to look up if you don't have a strong stomach, but essentially the process involves over the course of several years eliminating one food after another from one's diet and drinking various toxic teas and eventually getting to the point where you're just subsisting on roots and grass and then the by now emaciated monk is entombed alive and they become mummified as a result of this process. Now, whether or not this is true is subject to controversy. According to other sources, Chandragupta simply retires from public life and goes around hunting and eating meat and doing all kinds of very non-Jain things until he dies. But the lives of his successors would be better documented. And the Mauryan Empire would endure for another 120 years. During this time, trade flourished across India, aided not just by Chandragupta's road network, but also by a common shared currency and consistent application of laws through the use of regional councils answerable to the emperor. And trade also flowed back and forth through the Khyber Pass and through Afghanistan to the Greek world. Already, world trade was happening. The most famous of the Mauryan kings was Ashaka, who reigned during the mid-200s BC, and it would be during his reign that the Mauryan Empire would reach its zenith. He would publish a series of edicts on stone pillars all throughout India, and these edicts are a mixture of narrative history and philosophy and a political testament, but all supposedly directly from the pen of Ashaka. Now, during Ashaka's reign... The Kalinga War is fought, and this is possibly the bloodiest war in Indian history, depends on how you count it, but he conquers the neighboring Kalinga kingdom. And this conquest comes at the cost of over 100,000 killed in combat and hundreds of thousands more dead due to famines and mass deportations. After this conquest, much like his ancestor Chandragupta, Ashoka swears off warfare, but he converts to Buddhism, and he instead promotes what he calls the conquest of morality. And then he goes on to claim victory not just over the Kalinga, but over all surrounding peoples, including the Greek successor states, specifically naming kings as far away as the Greek city-state of Epirus, calling himself Devanam Priya, or Beloved of the Gods. Ashaka goes on to write in one of these edicts, quote, The conquest which has been won everywhere, causes the feeling of satisfaction. Firm becomes this satisfaction, the satisfaction at the conquest by morality. But this satisfaction is indeed of little consequence. Devanam Priya thinks that only the fruits in the other world are of great value. And for the following purpose has this rescript on morality been written, in order that the sons and great-grandsons who may be mourned to me should not think that a fresh conquest ought to be made, that if a conquest does please them, they should take pleasure in mercy and light punishments, and that they should regard the conquest by morality as the only true conquest, 
This conquest bears fruit in this world and in the other world. And let all their pleasure be the pleasure in exertion. For this bears fruit in this world and in the other world. Unquote. Now, Ashaka's advice is a bit repetitive, as are many writings of the day, but his descendants take it to heart, and perhaps they take it too much to heart. They become so peaceful that under a series of indecisive kings, the Mauryan Empire falls to a series of internal revolts and external conquests. Now, the next several centuries, from the 2nd century BC to the 12th century AD, this era, this roughly 1,400-year period, uh, features a divided India. Kingdoms come and go. Uh, successor states include a number of coastal kingdoms in the south, and larger kingdoms in the north of varying sizes, but the north is dominated by a few different powers at this point. As a matter of fact, there's even a Greek kingdom, yet another Greek successor state that makes a go of it for a little while here in India. And despite these you know, political divisions, India is the wealthiest part of the world during this time period. From the first millennium BC forward, trade accelerates across the Indian coast. Powers like the Chalukya dynasty, a western Indian monolith, wax and wane over the centuries, and these kingdoms form the crux of world trade during this time period. Traditionally, the Chinese have referred to themselves as the Middle Kingdom, which means literally, you know, the center of the world. But if any part of the world deserves the title of the Middle Kingdom, I would argue that it would be India. Because this area along the Indian coast becomes an area where merchants come from all over the world. Romans and then later Byzantine and Islamic merchants come to trade not just for spices from India, but also for silk from China. And Chinese merchants come to India to seek out goods and gold from the West. The Periplus of the Erythrian Sea, which is a Greek trade manual from the 1st century BC, lists a number of Indian ports in great detail, including what can be profitably bought and sold there. And along with these ports, it also lists what months you should arrive in what trade port. See, the reason for this is that the Greco-Indian trade relies on the monsoon winds. You think about a galley of the time, a traditional Mediterranean galley. Well, that type of ship is very difficult to row across the Arabian Sea. And on the other hand, early sailboats are unreliable. But if you get in a fast ship, and you catch the spring monsoon winds from Arabia in June, you will very quickly arrive in India. And then in November, you can just catch the fall monsoon winds back again. Running this route is dangerous. These are dangerous seas, but it's very profitable. And trade doesn't just bring money to India. It doesn't just create wealth. It also allows for the exchange of ideas. Philosophers from Rome to Beijing are read by Indian intellectuals. In the very early first millennium, you can see the same philosophers discussing Aristotle and Confucius. Now, as one example of this, Christianity arrives in the first century in India. 
It arrives with the Apostle Thomas just a generation after the historical Christ. Now, Christianity is a very small minority religion in India, but the fact that it has existed there since literally the very beginning of Christianity, well, that goes to show you how rapidly ideas were getting to India from everywhere in the world, even at this point in history, in the you know, first century A.D. During this era, India also makes major contributions to mathematics. Indian mathematicians are the first to use the concept of zero. That is a very important concept to do any kind of you know, mathematics more advanced than arithmetic, really. Uh, and they're the first to come up with symbols for exponents and roots. And their decimal system of numbers, right, the base 10 system, would eventually become universal. Of course, India would also have to contend with some of the troubles of the rest of this world, for instance, in the 5th and 6th centuries, just as the Huns were invading Europe, well, they were also invading northern India, and uh, the Gupta Empire, the particular empire that produced a lot of these mathematical advances, well, they would collapse, but they would be followed by others, and this brings us to the Middle Ages. Even as Muslims in the Mediterranean basin are battling back and forth with the Crusaders, Islamic powers in Central Asia are expanding, and they're starting to bump into Indian powers. Now, Islam had actually been present in modern-day Pakistan since the century following the death of the Prophet, but Early Muslim conquerors had not really followed up and basically became Indianized. You know, by the 11th century AD, they're pretty much indistinguishable from anybody else in India. But just as the Aryan invasion long ago had brought the Vedic system from Afghanistan, another invasion would introduce Islam into the subcontinent, in a similar fashion. See, the Indianized Muslim dynasty, called the Mahmud dynasty, eventually came into conflict with the city of Gore in Afghanistan. This is an ancient mountain fortress city, was very wealthy at the time due to trade. It no longer exists because it was destroyed by the Mongols shortly after the events of today's story. But at the time, the city of Gore is ruled by two Afghan-Turkic brothers, one of whom, Muhammad of Gore, invades the region of Sindh in western Pakistan. The two brothers have decided that Gore is not enough territory for the both of them, and they have agreed that rather than fight with each other, as so many uh, dynastic siblings do throughout history, uh, the one brother is going to simply rule Gore, and the other is going to take off with the bulk of the army and go conquer his own land. And so... Muhammad goes to conquer his own land, and he takes over this area of Sindh in modern-day Pakistan, where the Mahmud dynasty, this Indianized Muslim dynasty, had been ruling. And this would take place fairly quickly. Uh, his initial invasion would occur in 1182, and by the year 1185, just three years later, Muhammad of Gore had conquered all of the Mahmud dynasty. But he was just getting started. See, in late 1190, after taking about five years to consolidate his rule of what is now 
much of Pakistan. In late 1190, he launches a surprise attack across the Indus River and seizes the fortress of Batinda from the neighboring Rajputs. Now, the Rajputs are a people who at the time rule over a large territory in northwestern India, uh, centered around the modern Indian province of Rajasthan. That is a desert province in the northwest, and these people are mostly Hindu and are led by a king named Prithviraja. In early 1191, about a year after Muhammad of Gore's invasion, Prithviraja responds. He attacks Muhammad at a place called Taraori, which is modern-day terrain in northwestern India. Now, the number of forces involved and even the exact date of the battle are unclear, but it does appear that the Rajputs have the superior numbers. When Muhammad's steppe cavalry attempt a bait-and-retreat attack, right, so they send in mounted archers and fire a few arrows, and then when you go to attack them, they pretend to run away. Instead of just drawing the entire Rajput army into disorder, uh, Prithviraja uses his superior numbers to instead attack these cavalry from behind and surround them, and uh, forced to engage in melee combat, they are at a disadvantage. Muhammad of Gore himself leads a desperate charge to try and rally his troops, and he is nearly killed by an Indian javelin. He has to be carried out of the battle quickly in the retreat on the back of one of his subordinates' horses. And over the next year, Prithviraja besieges and retakes Batinda, this city that Muhammad of Gore had originally invaded across the border and nabbed from him. Now, Muhammad, in the meanwhile, recovers from his injury and rallies more troops, and he puts out a call for holy war as far away as Persia. And by early 1192, he has amassed a large but unknown number of troops. Paul K. Davis, the American military historian, estimates approximately 120,000, mostly steppe cavalry, so we'll go with that. Muhammad's and Prithviraja's armies meet again, roughly a year later, again at Taraori. This time... Muhammad deploys deception. Aware that the Rajput troops are familiar with steppe tactics, he holds some of his own troops in reserve. Here's how Paul K. Davis describes the battle in his book, 100 Decisive Battles from Ancient Times to the Present. He says, quote, The rematch took place on the same battlefield. Again, no exact date is recorded. This time, Muhammad was careful not to allow his troops to close with the Rajputs. He divided his force into five divisions. Four of them he sent to attack the Rajput flanks and, if possible, attack their rear. Any time the Rajputs pressed them, they were to feign panic and retreat. After fighting for most of the day and failing to break the Rajput ranks, Muhammad began withdrawing his entire force. Again he feigned panic, and this time the Rajputs took the bait. The 5th Division of 12,000 cavalry that he had held in reserve under his own command was still fresh, and they attacked headlong into the fatigued Rajputs, who were less than coordinated because of their desire to crush what they presumed to be a defeated enemy. This attack broke the Rajput pursuit, and sent them fleeing. The remainder of the Muslim force turned and rode the Rajputs down. Seeing his army disintegrating, Prithviraja abandoned his elephant and mounted a horse for a quicker escape. But the momentum of the Muslim charge carried his pursuers quickly to him. He was captured a few miles away and then executed. Most of his subordinates died in the battle as well. Unquote. 
And Muhammad of Gore's armies would eventually conquer as far as Hindustan in the west. As the heartland of the Ganges River Basin in northeastern modern-day India, so quite a ways from this area near Afghanistan where he had originally invaded. And by the year 1200, he would control most of northern India. Among other acts, his armies would nearly eradicate Buddhism in India. The future of that ancient religion, with very few exceptions, would lie to the north in Nepal and to the northwest in China. In the Ghurid dynasty, the dynasty founded by Muhammad of Gore and his brother, well, it would be short-lived. With his conquest of northern India complete, Muhammad would turn north, and attack someone named the Khwarezmian Shah. This is a powerful Central Asian leader who makes quick work of the Ghurids, at least everywhere north of the Hindu Kush. By 1206, Muhammad of Gore is dead. But the Islamic domination of northern India would not end. Muhammad leaves his land, at least the land in northern India, to Turkic slaves, who will found the so-called slave dynasty of what would ultimately become known as the Delhi Sultanate. We'll talk about that and more in part two of Crossroads of Civilization. Again, it's Dan, and I'm back to remind you that there is much, much more to relevant history on Patreon. If you click the Patreon link in the episode description and sign up for the very low and reasonable price of $5 per month, you will get access to our private Discord server for Patreon members, where I'm available most days, and you will also get access to a free monthly video, which I'm sure you will enjoy since it stars yours truly. Finally, Patreon members get a shout-out when they sign up, so you will hear your own name at the beginning of a Relevant History episode, which I'm sure is worth far more to you than any other reward. But if financial support doesn't work for you, that is just fine. Relevant History will always be free on all platforms, and you can still help us grow our audience. You can do this by leaving a review on Apple Music or Google Music or Spotify or wherever you listen. Or if you're listening on a video site like YouTube, well, hit the like button. That helps us reach more people. Finally, share with your friends. If you found this episode valuable or found another episode valuable, let other people know and see if they can't join the family here. And for all the latest news, make sure to follow me on Facebook. You can find the show there at facebook.com slash Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. And you can also find us on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast. Finally, if you'd like to reach out for any reason, whether because you like the show or because I got something completely wrong and you want to correct me, well, send me an email. You can reach me at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast at gmail.com. 
finally for everything else, including my blog, which I may start updating in the future. You can find all of that at dantolerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening.